0: Hey, OCD fam. It's International OCD Awareness Week, which I think technically extends through tomorrow. But a lot of amazing organizations are making it an OCD Awareness Month. Yeah! Holla! It's a great time to get support, learn more, you name it. So settle in, make yourself comfortable. And let's do this. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Y'all, it's mid-October already. Where has the time gone? I mean, seriously, August felt like 16 weeks for some reason to me. (laughs) But seriously, time is flying by. And if you're in the camp where you feel like, nope, it's slow, girl. Mm -mm. Like an October crawl. Well, all I can say is, August me get to, Okay. (laughs) So for this week's podcast, I'm interviewing the wonderful Jenna Overbaugh. She is the clinical marketing director for NoCD. That's N-O-C-D. And I just love this organization. NoCD app, or if you go to their website, TreatMyOCD.com, is a great resource for the OCD family community both domestically in the U.S. and internationally. I'm going to have Jenna tell you a bit more about where you can find them on social media, as well as Jenna herself having quite an active presence on her personal Instagram, at jenna.overbaugh. But per usual... Per usual, you guys, you know, I, you know I've got your back, right? Like, you know I've got your back. I know that we're often listening to podcasts while driving or cleaning or exercising, maybe even nodding off to sleep. It's okay. I do it too. <laughs> So if you want to catch any of this info, head on over to this episode's post on OCDFamilyPodcast.com. All references, resources, and citations for each and every podcast episode can be found in the blog. Okay, and with that, let's dive into this chat with Jenna because she is going to be talking with us about OCD, postpartum OCD, tips, and resources. So let's get to it. Jenna Overby, I'm so glad we got to connect. You are a licensed therapist and the clinical marketing director there at NoCD, helping facilitate clinical questions and decisions for the marketing platform of NoCD, correct? Yeah. So trying to just advocate for
1: the OCD community on behalf of NoCD through social media, especially since COVID. I mean, OCD is obviously already such an isolative disorder, makes you feel like you're completely alone and you're the only one with these thoughts. And so social media has been a really awesome way for people to kind of come together learn more. So I really own all of those social media platforms.
0: I love that. And you're very active on Instagram. What are the other social media platforms that you post through primarily?
1: Yeah, so we exist primarily on Instagram. That just tends to be where the bulk of our audience is. So that's at treatmyocd on Instagram. Lots of really great education stuff that I wish I would have been able to see as a budding professional in this field and as someone who struggled with OCD myself for so long. But I'm also on Instagram at jonna.overbaugh. That's more of like my personal page, but still really focused on the niche of OCD. But as far as an OCD goes, we're also on Twitter. It's a little bit more fun and laid back on Twitter. So that's also at Treat My OCD. We're on Facebook and we're also on TikTok. So lots of different content. We're on all those different platforms. If you follow us on all of them, you'll get different content from all those different areas.
0: Yeah. And I know NoCD does offer sometimes some live streams regarding different information as well. So that is a great way too to kind of stay in the loop in terms of what discussions are happening. And it's free to join those live streams, correct?
1: Oh, yeah. So we do on our on our social media pages, we do live question and answers usually two times a week. For the most part, they take place on Wednesdays and Fridays. Those are all recorded. So those are all really great resources. But yeah, these are there are also these webinars and we've done them since the very, very beginning. And those exist on our YouTube. They also go live on our Facebook, again, all recorded. So there's a big library and a monumental library of webinars and Just content galore. So really, really great content on YouTube too. So, you know, we feel really strongly, and I do personally too, just trying to make these resources as accessible as possible. And we know for so long, people outside of the United States weren't able to access ERP therapists or evidence-based treatment. Even when you can access it, it's too, you know, sometimes it can be too expensive or it just doesn't fit into your life or people just aren't ready for a variety of reasons. And so we still believe really strongly in making that high quality content available for people for as good of recovery decisions as they possibly can.
0: Excellent. Well, that is so important. And I think I did see where exactly outside of the U.S., Can you use NoCD? Because I think it started a little more in the UK, but do you guys have a, a list of what countries NoCD, like ERP therapists, would be available through?
1: Yeah. So we are pretty easily able to help people who are in Canada. Obviously, the United States is like, you know, where we originated and we're covered in all 50 states in the US, but Canada, we can assist with. The UK and Australia are pretty streamlined. And Otherwise, anywhere outside of those areas will also try. It really comes down to the individual laws, like really within where that person is. And I mean, that's not a no CD thing. That's a, a counselor thing. So like for example even in the US I'm right. licensed in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania if someone is not physically in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania at the time of my therapy appointment with them I can't see them. Right. So it's it's not a no city thing but I feel like a lot of people don't realize that is that it's very location specific and it's not one of these things like you become a therapist you get your license and suddenly you can help anybody anywhere it's not that simple. So I would always encourage everybody if you're not sure Chances are we'll be able to help you. We just have to, we can't say that for sure for everybody because it does vary so much depending on the location.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think even for mental health practitioners, understanding the portability of, and it's an important legal and ethical issue that I guess its overall aim is to be protective of, you know, if somebody was in crisis and you weren't accessible right. they're in another state and different states handle things differently but it can be challenging certainly and so it's always something to look into more but it, it sounds like it's worth checking out to see if no cd is accessible where you are now and I love that its reach is you know clear to Australia. We have listeners in Australia and so that is that's very helpful. So Jenna today I know no cd provides ERP treatment can cover a myriad of subtypes. We've talked here at the podcast about a myriad of subtypes, but part of what we're going to talk about today, we're going to zoom into talking about postpartum OCD. And you really have a passion for this area. And I would love if you could just give us a little bit of a background on your clinical experience, what brought you to that, and and we can kind of springboard from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I always start my story by saying that I have always been an anxious kid, like my earliest memories of being in school and whatnot were of me being anxious, having a sick stomach before school, not knowing, you know, who who am I going to sit with at lunch? What if I'm picked last for this? And but even then, though, like kindergarten, I remember being very competitive with my anxiety, not knowing what it was at the time, obviously, just knowing that that's how it was. I I remember thinking, like, I'm going to have to do the opposite. Like, it's miserable to feel anxious. I knew even from a very early age that I felt better when I didn't listen to that voice or feeling or whatever. So I always just challenged myself to go for it head on. So, you know, if I was hesitant, if I was afraid walking into the cafeteria, I would make sure my head was up. I was making eye contact with people deliberately. I was making sure that I invited myself to sit down at the scariest table. And I never thought anything of it. And then in college, I'm so lucky that I went to the college that I went to, that I took the course that I took, and that I went to class that day. But in my Psych 101 course as a freshman in college, we learned about exposure and response prevention. I feel like that's unheard of. That is.
0: Um, I'm, I, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. It was really incredible. And I'm, it was like just very serendipitous that it happened that way because you very rarely learn about OCD. you very rarely, if ever, learn about evidence-based treatment and then to learn about ERP, like that's unheard of, especially so early. So but when I, I remember hearing about it and I was like, I have to do this. This is in my bones. This is like everything that I want to do. I wanted to be a therapist, but not like the the typical like crying and talking about feelings, it just didn't feel like me. So it was perfect. And then you know, everything from that point on, every paper, every research article, Every internship, it was about ERP. It was about OCD. It was about a related condition somehow. I did everything that I could to just hone in on that niche as much as possible. So spent the next four years in college just doing what I could in the undergraduate level and then went on to grad school, specialized in it even further. The next eight years, eight or nine years, I worked at a residential OCD and anxiety recovery unit for adults, one of the very, very few in the whole entire world. So there, I worked with the most debilitating cases of OCD in the world. They would come and live with us for 45 to 60 days, if not longer. And that gave me the best training in the whole entire world. Was that you know? Rogers? Yep, that was at Rogers Memorial Hospital here in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And yeah, and now I'm at no CD. Just with the pandemic and life changes and everything like that, you know, it, it's it's just been really awesome. you know, another part of my story, as much as we've talked professionally, I I have a four and a half year old. He was born in 2018. And, you know, going into my pregnancy, I was like, I got this. I know everything there is to know about OCD. I would never ask my husband to do anything for me out of anxiety. I'm good. Like almost not even naive, but like ignorant, admittedly. Like I know everything that I need to know. I'm not going to, I would never ask. I would never avoid doing something that I'm scared of with my baby. But then, of course, I have this cute little like two week old. He's home and I have to put his socks on. And I had this intrusive thought hit me like a lightning bolt, as OCD often does. And I was like, what if you snap his ankles trying to put his socks on? And then I had the subsequent thought of like, did you want to do that? Like, Would you do
0: that? Like, are you sure that you didn't want to do that? Yeah. Why would you think it if you didn't want to do it? Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know,
1: in the moment, I knew all the things. I knew that, yep, that was an intrusive thought. Yep, that was ego dystonic. I could, like, on paper tell you all the things. But I remember very vividly, like, throwing my hands up and being like, "Uh uh-uh, hell no. I am not doing that. No way. The stakes are too high. And from there, my husband started putting his socks on for me and I knew very well what I was doing, but it was just like, "Uh uh-uh, no way, I'm not doing that. And it, of course, as OCD is, it is extremely insidious and it snowballs and it starts out as this like one little meaningless thing, right? Like, oh yeah, it's just socks. It's no big deal. But eventually I was not able to put his pants on, his diaper on, his shirt on. I wasn't able to pick him up. I wasn't able to be alone with him. I remember a pit in my stomach every single time that my husband would go pee, like, for what, a minute, right? Like, oh my gosh, what if I do something? What if I lose control and I do something? And how do I possibly handle this child for a a minute without my husband being a supervisor? And it got really, really debilitating within like three months. By the time I went back to work after my maternity leave after three months, I was a completely different person, I was almost wishing that I didn't work at Rogers so that I could apply to go there. It was
0: bad. Wow. Yeah. And so Rogers is one. And as you mentioned, one like in the world, there's very few treatment centers designed to really be able to help facilitate higher levels of care, residential facilities. There are residential facilities throughout the U.S. and, and the world for other purposes, but for OCD. And so here you are, a specialist working in that higher level of distress and going back into the office that had to be pretty scary, not only because you wish you could apply, but also being surrounded by people that surely if you told them, this is what I'm thinking, they're going to be like, oh, Jenna, I mean, yeah, here's what you need to do. And it had to be terrifying for you.
1: Yeah. And I felt also like a fraud, like in one way, I remember almost like negotiating with God, not that I'm like a hugely religious or even spiritual person by any means, but I remember being so desperate that I was like negotiating with God. I will never invalidate or undermine any of the people that I work with ever again if you just, like, get rid of this for me and make this easier for me. So in one way, like, I could relate to them in a whole new way. Like, I could see how you could know all of the things and then still choose differently because it felt so real, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't really get that before. I was like, why aren't you listening? Like, I'm here telling you what you need to do and you must not want to get better. But at the same time, I felt like a huge imposter. I felt like a huge fraud because I'm sitting there telling them not to give in to their rituals and that they need to do the things. And I wasn't doing the things.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's really a powerful point to be able to share because our main population, and certainly we have OCD sufferers and we have people that are practicing or researching family members that are supporting that have their own OCD, myself included, yourself included. And so I think that's really powerful to be able to say, "Hey, I know the things and yet I can't I can't seem to shake this fight-fighter freeze kind of feeling of the stakes just being too high for me to risk it." Because I think so many of the families that we work with know exactly what that feels like yeah. of especially when you're seeing the panic in your loved one's eyes and going I'm trying to not accommodate. I'm trying to not, but the stakes are too high and they are suffering and I've got to help them. We have these like
1: internal driven, especially as parents, right? Like there's nothing stronger than the desire to want to take care of your child, whether like from whatever perspective, right? Like mine was I had postpartum OCD. I had harm intrusive thoughts about him and other related thoughts too. It's like my drive to protect him was almost, you know, clearly to a fault. But the other way too, right? Like when you are a family member of someone who has OCD and you see your child in distress, you can know that it's the best thing for them, but it's awful. It goes against every single wiring in you to do that.
0: Right. To see them screaming in pain, sometimes very directly verbalizing how And like- sometimes directed to the per to the parent or yes. a caregiver
1: right yes like, you're torturing you don't love me. me like we're yeah. why well, would you do this to me you don't care about me i'm never going to speak to you again and it's like if i don't bring my four and a half year old the right fruit snacks after school he tells me those things like he's starting to get to the point where he like he doesn't understand right And i'm right. like that's terrible i can't imagine right like yeah these
0: feelings are heavy you know we had the honor of talking with a dad earlier in the podcast season, who went through very similar postpartum harm-intrusive thoughts about his children. And it really illuminates, and you've made this point as well, that it can happen certainly, and we can look at the links of hormonal things, how that amplifies it with mothers, but it can also happen with dads. It can happen with (laughs) adoptive parents and caregivers. Can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So
1: no one is immune to this. That's like, if you've got nothing from my story so far, even someone who's spoken at national conferences is a published author, like does this all day, every day. No one is immune to it, right? So it can happen to anybody. So we know that OCD latches on to what we value. OCD manifests from our worst fears. And so there's no reason to say that a caregiver or a dad or an adoptive parent or a sibling could not have OCD related to a new baby being born Or, or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, we often talk about moms. And while that just certainly does happen more, there are hormonal changes that affect that. There are lots of other things as well. But yeah, it can certainly happen with dads. It can certainly happen with, you know, just adoptive parents, siblings, any other family member. And I've worked with tons of like babysitters, right? Like whether you would call it postpartum OCD or harm OCD or whatever, like there's no reason. OCD knows no bounds. It is limited only by our imagination. And so, yeah. And I think in addition to the hormonal piece, which obviously plays such a huge role, it's also, we know that OCD kind of latches onto and can be exacerbated by stressful life events. like what the heck is more stressful, good stress and bad stress than having a child and bringing that child into the world? Like so many disruptions, disruption in your sleep, disruption in your eating more than likely, probably not able to take the best care of yourself, disruption in your relationship. But then also something that I love to shed light on for people is OCD loves to one, attach to what we value two what we feel most responsible for
0: mm-hmm. and
1: three what we feel we can't accept uncertainty about
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what is all of that but motherhood or like new parenthood right yeah. so who what do we value more in this life is you know especially as new parents right like we value that child we value that relationship more than anything we're also as moms we are arguably the most responsible for that baby right so regardless of however you want to put it, like society, right? Like society places that, that belief on us that the mother is in and of itself, you know, there's really no other way to shake it, is the most responsible for that baby. And then finally we have uncertainty, which is what is more uncertain than a newborn baby? Like, would my son let me know if I hurt him on accident? Like, I don't know. He
0: can scream pretty loud sometimes, but I, like it's just the perfect Petri dish for these yeah. things. Right. And you add things like exhaustion. You're exhausted. You're sleep deprived. So your tolerance for distress is going to be impacted. And then the less sleep you're getting, or if you're not getting normal meals and you're constantly, say, breastfeeding or working to, even if you're a formula feeder, I mean, with breastfeeders, like if you're not eating around the clock, because you're burning so many calories, but even with formula feeders, like you are exhausted, you're adjusting to this new life. And it's like, sometimes you're like, did I eat? I didn't. It's like 10 hours have gone by. And so you see how lack of sleep, lack of food. So much intrinsic, important value in this new, very dependent being. Yeah, and and you're navigating this with like the utmost level of exhaustion. A lot of times, still in pain or recovery. Even if you're if even if you're an adoptive parent, I mean, it, it's an adjustment. Yeah, and getting through the adoption process in and of itself is no small task. That can take years. Yeah. Years. Well,
1: so, and and regardless of where you're coming from, the whole parenting journey, right? Like it's it's a toxic positivity fest all the way around. Didn't you just fall in love with them the moment that you saw them? Or aren't you
0: just enjoying every minute? And it's like, it goes so fast, Mama. It goes so yeah, fast. Don't blame. Like, right. Don't underestimate the preciousness of this time. And it's like, how. When your inner world is like, oh, my gosh, what if I lose
1: my mind when I'm with my son for a minute? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And that's all you hear going on around you is like, don't you just love every minute? It co- it adds this compounded nature of like, what's wrong with me? Right. Like, shame. why am like, like, yeah, the shame and the guilt and the what's I remember feeling that every walk that I made, right? Like every step that I took, it was like, what's wrong with me? Like, mm-hmm. Why am I not able to be alone with my son for more than 30 seconds at a time? Like, Why is my stomach dropping when I'm alone with my baby where I have these other images of moms and these other experiences of moms who are alone with their babies all day, right? Like all day they're with their babies and they're saying that they love it. Like what's wrong? There must be something wrong with me.
0: Yeah, they they love it. And it's like the coliseum for you. You're like, someone's not going to make it through. And I'm really afraid about how this is going to yeah. go every day. Yeah. And there's also those women that come. Well, and it's again, it's not exclusive to just women, but they come out of it going, well, I don't feel this like deep love. So if I don't feel this deep love, I'm in pain and I can't get, especially say you have colic or something where, but but even if your baby's acting the best possible way it can for a newborn, it's going to be high needs, and you might not go, wow, this is the most amazing person ever. You might want to have that instinct of I want to protect them, but I don't feel that. So maybe something is wrong with me. Maybe I'm just a terrible person. Maybe I'm a terrible mom, and that does get reinforced, and then so many things as a new mom, are so controversial in terms of, you know, we've touched just even very briefly on it, but, you know, did you breastfeed? Did you not? Did you get an epidural? Was it natural? Yeah, when? Water birth. Did you do this? Did you do a home birth? Did you do that? And it's, and and overall even though I think a lot of people would say it's not meant to judge, it just becomes this kind of comparison game of did you co-sleep? Did you sleep train? Did you, you know, for some people, they're like, that is the way to do it. Other people are like, that's abuse. It's child abuse. I mean, there's such strong, strong feelings on that. And you're trying to balance that influx of information, learn your child, heal, somehow feel like a normal person again, you know, go through postpartum healing, which I feel like people talk about the birth, but they don't. That was a little wake up call for me. I was like, mom, (laughs) why didn't you tell me this was all going to happen?
1: Yeah. Like I, that's, that's what happens, right? Like that's the danger. in just talking about the good stuff is that I remember being very resentful also of the people in my life, like my friends, the other moms who I knew, my own mom. Like, why didn't you talk to me about intrusive thoughts? Like, why didn't you tell me about the ones that you had? Like, I I feel I laugh. Like, I feel like intrusive thoughts in parenting and in in new motherhood are like a hidden Taylor Swift album, like a hidden Taylor (laughs) Swift track. It's like, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. And then boom. And it seems like no one talked about it. Until I started talking about it and then it was like, oh, yeah, I have those thoughts too. Oh, my gosh. I used to have those thoughts. My husband has a gun downstairs and I used to always have these intrusive thoughts about the gun and with the babies. And I'm like, where were you like six months ago? Like, I wish you would have told me that. Because it's like, I don't need that now. Like, it's nice to have that now. But like, I needed you for the past six months. So Right. That's what I always try to go above and beyond and like do this and try to educate and inform and empower and like tell my expecting friends like what do you want to know like do you want to know the whole story do you want to know just the good stuff do you want to know the the down and, and dirty and nitty gritty because I'll tell you all of it
0: <laughs> right and I I think that is powerful because being able to have that conversation a helps us to feel less alone b normalizes the intrusive nature. <laughs> Of just our brains anyway, but you look at we're under stress, whether it's lack of sleep, whether it's healing, whether it's whether it's OCD or not, we're under stress. And you don't have to have OCD to have intrusive thoughts. And so normalizing that is really important. But people are a little afraid to say, you know, I had this thought because what if they call child protective services on me? Am I and a mock- that's a, that's not an unfounded fear.
1: It happens all the time. Like, I cannot tell you how many times I have saved women who their husband reached out to me and they saw me on Instagram or talked about it. You know, heard my voice on a podcast and they're like, my wife was just referred by a doctor to inpatient. She is literally being sent there in an ambulance right now. I am reaching out to you because I know that she has OCD and they won't listen. Like, can you help? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my gosh,
0: like this is this can mess someone's life up. Speaking of inpatients, too, because when you have something like harm, the harm subtype of OCD, whether it's harm to others, harm to self, it's really important. And it's something this is at a bigger level. It's a policy level. But part of the process is talking about it. So it's important to be able to have these conversations as well. But the difference between suicidality, homicidality, harm, you know, we need to start understanding because a lot these people... Suffering with harm themes, yourself included, are the last people on earth that we need to worry about actually harming their child. And we need to educate the hospitals because there are people that will go to the hospital and they're suicidal and they need to be hospitalized for their own safety or homicidal. But that is different than having harm OCD. And I think the fear of the sufferers, if I say something there, I am this, I'm afraid I am this kind of psycho lunatic that needs to be locked up. And then they get locked up and the hospitals don't understand what is happening. Yeah, no, 100%. They don't know their shit when it comes to OCD it's rare that they know. I guess I should say that. That's you know, most most cases, and so you have harm theme or uh, towards self, towards others, and you could end up fifty one fifty in a in a psych hospital or in a totally. involuntary hold. Especially as a new mom.
1: Yes. Yes. So moms Ooh. with these thoughts are especially vulnerable. Yeah. One
0: hundred. Yeah. So in your story, you were letting us know that, you know, about three months in, you return to work and it's just at a very intense, severe level. And so, and again, you said you were almost like, man, I wish I could come to Rogers, but I work at Rogers. So what did you do? What was, what happened next to be able to manage and getting through this? I feel like I was lost for a very long time.
1: So, you know, math, right? Like February, March, April, May. So he was born in February, went back to work in May. I was still super debilitated. My bottom took place in September. So September was really just like two weeks ago was kind of the anniversary of it. I actually, it got to a point where I wanted to run into moving to oncoming traffic. And so I thought about it for a while. It was not ego dystonic, right? So you're highlighting, you know, there are people out there who have these thoughts. There are people out there who want to hurt themselves or want to hurt other people. That's not what we're talking about in OCD, right? That's ego dystonic. Those thoughts scare them. Those thoughts do not feel consistent with what they want to do. I was experiencing some hardcore suicidal ideation. Like I wanted to. I had frequently up to that point been fantasizing about rolling out of a moving vehicle was always kind of the way that I pictured it. But there was a point in September, I remember exactly where we were, what was going on. But I had my husband stop the car and I was going to run into oncoming traffic. And it's really silly, but I got stopped by a swarm of mosquitoes like in this field. And thank goodness I did, because I remember that like annoyance was still like a vibrational and like energetic lift beyond like the hopelessness and just the despair. Right. And I remember feeling like that's strange. Like I feel better in that moment, like I felt better in that moment being like in the swarm of mosquitoes, just like trying to do my thing, right? Right. (laughs) Well, that felt better and that like jarred me. Like, I think it just brought me back to reality a little bit, like. Yeah. um, And yeah, I mean, I have chills even discussing it because it's like, thank goodness, right? Like, thank goodness that those freaking mosquitoes were there because I did, like, I think it just grounded me. And then as soon as I came home that day, I immediately called a therapist. And I just like was, I was desperate. Like I just was willing to see anyone who was like able to help me as far as the postpartum stuff. She wasn't necessarily specialized in OCD, but I felt like I could kind of compliment that, like my knowledge. You're like, well, I know this. <laughs> it was just really a matter of like getting in with someone who understood like the whole postpartum process. So she did specialize in postpartum and she was great. She totally changed my life. She's a rock star. And yeah, but it it was a bad bottom. and from then, like, I just really committed to like, I mean, it really got to the point where like, you know what, I'm going to take that leap of faith. Like maybe I will lose my mind and like freak out on my baby and like totally lose my like social or mental status, whatever, like just lose control, which was my ultimate fear. But like, I'm also kind of losing control now. Like I was about to run into traffic. So it was kind of like, I was finally willing to take that leap of faith and I didn't know if I would land, but I had to like, I literally had no choice. I had to. And luckily, everything has been so much better. I was now four years ago. I was it was it's great. But it, it took a while. So even us therapists, we don't listen to our own advice all the time. And OCD will put you in a mindset where that feels impossible and not worth it.
0: Well, and if OCD was a rational disorder, then we'd be gold. Right. Because we had all the ability to rationalize. I think so many people get caught in that, ourselves included. But it's not a rational disorder. You can know all the things. It doesn't matter. OCD doesn't care. It, it, there, and that's because it, it exists in our imagination, right? So it exists
1: usually in the future or our interpretation of the past, right? In that, in that way, there's always going to be something imaginative about it. There's always going to be one more but what if. And so when we have our creative brains, right? We can provide OCD with all the logic in the world, but that's why it doesn't work because it is in our OCD lives in our imagination. It lives in the future. And simply as that is the case, like there's always going to be one more but what if there's always going to be one more creative idea or creative low probability solution or a low probability thing that negates that logic. And that's why it's so important not to rationalize. With our family members, as tempting as it is, like, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Or you've done this before, or it's fine. You know, you could put his socks on, he's fine. Like, you just, you can't, it doesn't work.
0: It doesn't work. Right. And we've talked about, you know, here on the podcast, we've talked about, I've compared the neuroscience to kind of like a battery circuit. Right. And if you have a closed circuit, and you're thinking of this with the obsessional thoughts, the distress that comes, the compulsions, the maybe temporary relief or at least survival until the next thought, and this being the circuit. You can't ration, like, if it literally was a battery circuit and this, the, the circuitry in our brain is reinforcing this thought loop, you can't say to a battery, well, turn off already. You've done that before. Like, the yeah. battery's not going to turn off unless it's literally unhooked or the battery runs out. Right. And, it, and our brains
1: need experience. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people, like, when it comes to fear and survival, our brains are very, very stubborn. We're really good at learning new information. We learn new threatening information really quickly. And thank goodness for that because, you know, we don't need to get hit by a car in order to know that, hey, you don't play in traffic. But as far as getting rid of those fears and extinguishing those fears and, you know, being able to learn that that's not as necessarily risky as it, I think it is in my brain, you know, it's very stubborn and it doesn't get rid of that. So I always tell people like, if you got bit by a golden retriever, if you got bit by a dog, it would take one negative, scary, or threatening event. It would take that one event for you to not only be fearful of that golden retriever, but every other golden retriever and probably a little bit more fearful of other dogs too. Mm-hmm. It, it's just like a lightning bolt, boom, and it has these like very generalizing effects. That's right. just how your is established. And again, thank goodness for that. Unfortunately, though, right, like it doesn't work the opposite way. If you're terrified of dogs, especially if you've lived every day of your life, every time you see a dog, you walk the opposite way or, you know, you don't have a dog or you don't go to friends' houses when they have dogs and you give your brain that message, you're not going to be able to unwrite that or relearn a new pathway in your brain by just having one pleasant experience with a dog. You're going to have to have hundreds potentially of new experiences that are pleasant and that overwrite that.
0: And, uh, and even in overriding it, some of that doubt might still exist. But the point is, you don't need to have the certainty that every single time, because, you know, you're going to meet an asshole dog who's going to bite.
1: And there's so nothing course. there's no, there's nothing that you could do to avoid that. Unless you literally pull yourself together in bubble wrap and sit in the corner of your brain and literally isolate yourself and never pursue any of your values. Maybe then you'll never have
0: to, you know, face your fear of dogs. But what kind of life is that? Right. Like, like right. I think it was also a really good point. You know, there is a lot of hopelessness and a feeling of helplessness, too, that can develop, especially chronically living with OCD. But even if you've lived with it and have been aware of it in the short term, if it's pretty intense, which it can feel all-consuming, so if it's pretty intense, I mean, it's very controlling in a disorder. I don't know I've ever met a case where I'm like, well, that's not very intense OCD at all. Yeah. But what I will say is, we were talking about there are people that can have harm themes, they wouldn't hurt a fly, but they could be hospitalized for these harm themes. But you pointed something out really important that I think is worth putting a little emphasis on that and highlighting it again, because it would be ego dystonic. I'm afraid I might hurt my person. You also clarify that when you were having suicidal ideation, it was no longer ego dystonic because you were feeling so hopeless that this was going to change. And there was so much fear and distress in everyday life that you can get to a place where you can feel depressed. You can feel hopeless. You can feel like, you know what, I would rather the noise just be gone than ever have to deal like an- with another breath. Mm-hmm. That-, that happened. And we that, know that. We know that. That certainly happens, and it's not uncommon. But it's 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 not like there's no direct relationship between if you have harm themes of OCD that you could get to that point. This is, this goes with any mental health. This, yeah. this goes with life. If you get to a place where you're feeling hopeless and it's egocentric to think this would be the solution, that is where we go. Okay, crisis moment. Let's step in to try and help save this person. And hopefully you would be in therapy and it wouldn't get to that level where before you would be like, shit, we need to help this person to stay safe. That's where we look at things like hospitalization and going, we need to make sure that this person can stay safe. Because often if you can get pulled out of it and it can be the oddest things, it can be a a swarm of mosquitoes that is enough to make you go, to go, wait a minute, what am I doing? I can swim. I can keep going instead of drowning in this ocean of what feels like just incredible distress. And so it can happen, but not not if you have a harm based theme, It doesn't mean like you're going to end up having that. I think there's some fear sometimes within families of like, well, they have this fear about, you know, doing that. What if they but what if they would do that? And so it actually there's actually research now,
1: which is so imperative. It's specifically about postpartum women who had just had a baby. But it's really awesome research that I can send to you that they just did about how specifically new moms who have and reported unwanted intrusive harm thoughts about their baby, they trapped them over time. And they, versus people who said that they did not have those thoughts, they were actually significantly less likely to act on harm, whatever yeah. that might be. Whether yeah. that's thinking or anything even more significant than that, right? So we have this faulty to say the least, misunderstanding that, okay, if you have harm intrusive thoughts, especially as a as a new mom, that that means that that's like danger, right? We need right. to flag this person. We need to keep the baby safe. And it's like, those people are the most safe to be around, yeah. probably. Like, especially in all of the thorough work that I've done with people who have really debilitating OCD. Like, these are the types of people who call the police on themselves for things that they didn't do. Right, right, right. These are people who will sit there and open a door for you and stay and stand there for three minutes while you like finish a conversation so that they don't like close the door in your face like they're the nicest people and that's why this is these harm thoughts are so like in conflict with who they are as a person
0: yeah i would love if you would send that over to me and i will post that that study on this episode's podcast post because i think that would be important for people to be able to follow up on i always love to kind of go back to the research because we can say anything and i feel like in this day and age people will be like yeah the sky is blue no it's red and and there's big debates on it. And it's like, where's the science? You know, so I would love. Well, we finally have some science to back it up. Science. And I'm super stoked about it. Yes. And so I'd love to share that. It's really important, you know, for anybody that is dealing with this, because I think If you have a postpartum mom going, I'm afraid, then I'm going to snap my baby's ankles, right? You know, and you need to put on the socks. And then the person lovingly, love intense of like, well, the kid needs socks on. We're going somewhere and and you're feeling really distressed. I'll just put the socks on. What can get reinforced over time is the, yeah, actually, I am going to do this stuff because I don't know that I do trust you Mm -hmm. with the baby. So the person who's already afraid, maybe I'm going to do something. Now the people around them are like, yeah, we should do that. It starts off as, I can see you're suffering, so sure, I'll just put on the socks, real small, and then it can, it can build and reinforce this idea like, yeah, you're not safe enough to be with the baby. And so part of, and I don't think the intention is there at all from the family members, especially people with newborns, they're like, no, I don't want to do it all myself, you need to help me, I can't survive you know it's they they want support but there can be a lot of messages that get misunderstood or reinforced inadvertently and so it's really important that we're able to be able to have conversations about this where and it's hard you know if you don't know anything about OCD or maybe you come from a family culturally where you know we don't embrace mental health it's one of those things of we don't talk about that right so if you sat down and you're like hey I'm I'm afraid that I'm mean, going to be hurting my child. In fact, I, I checked them three times because I, I kind of think maybe I did and I wasn't sure. And then they were crying and I'm, I'm upset. People don't know what to do. You should talk to somebody. You're, they reinforce that message because they get scared, too. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't have understanding about it. And so the best thing to do, first of all, I think if you are in that space where you're like, I don't know what to do with this, it's OK to say you don't know what to do with this. And in a non-shaming way, go, let's find somebody that does.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, And, and even better, if you can say, like, you know what? Like, I have I have strange thoughts, too, every once in a while. It doesn't have to be, I mean, because research shows that everyone has intrusive thoughts. Yeah. It doesn't always, like, you don't have to have the same necessary thoughts as as another person does, right? But we all can probably relate to, you know, driving somewhere and we're alone and it's dark. Oh, my gosh. What if you just, like, drove this car off the side of the road? Right or like yeah. imagining our grandparents having sex, like what the heck? Where did that come from? Like we can all, we should all be able to relate to these like strange spam thoughts that come in out of our mind out of nowhere. Spam um, thoughts. I like that yeah.
0: spam thoughts.
1: Spam thoughts. And like I think of it this way: like our brains are really incredible. We have brains that can. Make planes, and we have brains that like can now make like the iPhone forty seven or whatever they we're on right? now, right? Like we have such creative brains, yeah. And that's not always going to be used for good, right? Like we also have some like really strange thoughts too, and that are like kind of could be bad or like violent in nature, right? But I also think of like the horror film makers of our times right oh like, yeah like he's had some like everyone could agree that he probably has had some like weird thoughts right but like <laughs> what did he do about it he made him into these like awesome books and
0: awesome movies like totally i laugh at the the intrusive thought car example because i was explaining this to a client's parent once and i said you know imagine you're in the car or whatnot have you ever had an experience like this that's it's a fairly normal experience. And he was very, very, like, deadpan and looked back at me and was like, I have never had an experience like that. And I was like, okay, well, there can be a number of intrusive thoughts. And I was like, I don't have, he just, I did not, he wasn't in the space to even accept OCD going on in his family. But it was interesting because, yes, we do. And even if your intrusive thought wasn't a car going into a tree or off a road or off a bridge, it doesn't mean that you haven't ever had an intrusive thought cuz what is an intrusive thought it's it's a thought that pops into your head that brings a, f- a level of intrusiveness or distress it doesn't feel good and intrusive thoughts can be on a continuum that is you know undefinable cuz like you said it's it's based on your imagination. So an intrusive thought can be anything from what would seemingly be minor to to many, to extreme and if it's bringing up the distress and you're finding that you're having that stick and repeat and ultimately like the distress itself you start to fear that feeling and so you're starting to engage in different thoughts or different actions to help neutralize or minimize or avoid that distress. That is where we get into OCD. And I think it's a lot more common than people realize. When we talk about postpartum, a lot of times people go postpartum depression, baby blues, maybe their gynecologist or OBGYN will give them like a little brief survey when they come in for their postpartum checkup. Hey, you know, have you been feeling sad? Are you exhausted? It's like what newborn mom isn't exhausted? They do a little questionnaire, maybe do a PHQ 9 give you a little bit of an assessment. But I feel like there's even a stigma about talking about it. It's like, do you have baby blues? Are you feeling all sad? Are you okay? Okay, moving on, because it's not necessarily their wheelhouse. And postpartum depression is definitely a serious, important thing to be able to screen for. I don't think we're screening very well for it. But in terms of postpartum anxiety and postpartum OCD as well, like a whole host of postpartum things that can happen. Can you talk a little bit about how people can recognize or get more information and just learn and be more knowledgeable about postpartum OCD? Because I think even our practitioners that screen for postpartum depression don't necessarily know what OCD is or depression could slap them in the face and they wouldn't know it sometimes. And so, you know, what tips would you give to people in terms of learning and expanding their knowledge about whether they suspect it's happening in their family? Or just being knowledgeable and being able to be on the lookout for friends, family members going through postpartum?
1: Yeah, so depression is, I think most of us have a a more decent, you know, in comparison to OCD for sure, kind of understanding of what that looks like, right? Like low mood, you know, it could be low appetite. It could be too big of an appetite, kind of anything that's deviating from that person's baseline, you know, just basically not having the energy to do things that make them feel like themselves, right? So a lot of feelings of sadness and, you know, hopelessness about life. That's depression. And while somebody can definitely have OCD and depression, they can be related to one another. They can be completely separate from one another. OCD is different, much more different, not just in its presentation and diagnostic criteria, but also in the intended treatment. So the evidence-based treatment for depression is, or one of them is behavioral activation. The evidence-based treatment for OCD, or one of them is exposure and response prevention. They're very, very different. And so when we're thinking about OCD, this is when someone experiences obsessions. So within that is these intrusive kind of spam thoughts. Like I said, they could be images, ideas, impulses, feelings, commands, sounds, um, Sounds. urges. Yeah. Just any of these like intrusive experiences that kind of come in out of nowhere that feel very distressing, that feel like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? And they're ego dystonic. So they're not consistent. With that person's sense of self or what they would like to be thinking about, it's in conflict with their sense of character and it scares them. So it generates a lot of anxiety and it leads to this second piece, which is obviously the compulsions. So compulsions are just these things either outwardly in our behaviors or mentally in our heads that we feel are urged to do, that we feel compelled to do. We don't necessarily want to do them, but we feel like we have to do them in order to mitigate or neutralize the anxiety that we feel from that obsession. And so, you know, as far as diagnostic criteria goes, I I do think that we all have a little bit of that, right? Like, I do feel like we all have, again, intrusive thoughts. We all have our, you know, safety behaviors. We avoid things from time to time as humans. But when it becomes distressing and impairing, that's when we really would want that person to seek help. And that could be problematic. So distress is just how much distress is this causing to the person or and or to the family, right? So You know, if it's causing a lot of distress within the family, that could be problematic. And also we look at how much that is impacting their day-to-day functioning. So is it impacting their ability to eat, to shower, to take care of themselves, to take care of the baby? For postpartum OCD in particular, it could certainly manifest in the form of harm-intrusive thoughts. So fearfulness that they might harm the baby either on purpose or on accident could range. I mean, again, OCD is limited only by imagination. So by no means is this just a, you know, a super comprehensive list of examples. But contamination is very prevalent as well. Just fearfulness that somehow the baby is going to get sick and, you know, rinsing and sanitizing bottles and all that stuff. Sexual intrusive thoughts are also really common, despite how little they are talked about just because of how taboo they are. But a lot of new parents struggle with sexual intrusive thoughts, like, did I look too long at my son's penis? One that I have often struggled with and that I am open about because I want other people to know they're not alone is my son is still four and a half and he still wears um a diaper at night. He's potty trained, but he wears a diaper at night. And every so often I will check to make sure that his penis is down, because if it's not, it sprays all over him and it sprays all over the bed and my bed and whatever. But still, every time that I, like, ask him or every time that I push it down myself, I have this intrusive thought that says, did you really need to ask him about that? Or did you like that? Do you like doing that? Um, and so, obviously, that's very daring for people. You can imagine if they don't have the context for, like, knowing what intrusive thoughts are, that would be extremely distressing.
0: Yeah. And even if you do have the context for intrusive thoughts, there are certain subjects that feel more taboo and that feel more stigmatizing. And I think that you've brought up the points of harm, the points of sexual intrusive thoughts. Those are biggies that people are scared to talk about because, again... Am I am I like they're already worried they might be the worst person ever. But what's going to happen to me if I say these things? Because it's not that you've committed any of these acts. It's that you're so afraid that you could or that because a thought entered your head that what that means about you, then are you this monster? Are you this bad person? And It's really, really scary to say those out loud because even somebody that may understand, even a therapist that may understand in terms of thoughts might go, whoa, you know, big red flag there. And that can be even more shaming and stigmatizing and cause somebody to isolate even more, which puts them at higher risk for feeling completely hopeless and really, really isolated, which are just this is not a good cocktail for any mental health issue when you're feeling really hopeless and really isolated. And so, yeah, I I appreciate you being candid with sharing that because certainly you are not alone. And there are absolutely people out there too afraid to say that. You said, why don't they say that? It's like, if I said that to my pastor, they're going to kick me off the staff. If I say this to my coworker, I might get fired. If I say this to somebody, I might get, you know, my kids taken away from me. And so it is really scary. To, to separate that, a thought doesn't define who you are. And just because we get these thoughts in our head and uh, get a lot of thoughts throughout the course of a day, think of a lifetime. Oh my. Not every thought, just because you think it, doesn't mean this is empirical truth that you need to try before a jury to prove innocent or guilty. But that's what OCD wants. It wants to run that trial and it wants to say, oh, well, you have to be a thousand percent certain. And even if you are, are you really? There's always something else that maybe, maybe, maybe you're responsible for this. And so it it can be terrifying. It is very distressing. It's hard on the body. And you think of all the changes that a person is already going through in postpartum. And you, you couple that with the amount of stress that they're experiencing, having this state of intrusive thoughts and it looping consistently, it's very, very, very tough. And so As much as it seems like I can't tell anybody, one of the best things you can do is to tell somebody and to have a conversation and get it out and realize you're not alone. But not everybody has proven to be a safe confidant. And so if you, if anybody is listening to this podcast and they're going, okay, I know somebody in my family has said this and they've told me privately, or I've thought this, I've been too afraid to tell someone, what would you recommend as the next step for them in terms of how to get help and finding a safe person that they can talk about that with? Oh, I, you know, it's going to be different from person to
1: person. I think that OCD and uh, however you cut it, it's a very isolative disorder. It makes you feel like you're the only one. It makes you feel like all of the other people in the world, like, yeah, they might have OCD, but you're the only one who has this type, right? So I always empower people first to get as educated as possible about it. And luckily, like we've talked about, there's so many great resources. I would, if possible, right, like I would try to find a community. I would try to find a community of individuals who have OCD so that you realize that you're not alone first. Because chances are people who don't have OCD, they might, you know, do their best to try to understand, you know, hopefully if they care enough about you and they're worthwhile to be part of your recovery process, they'll try to understand. But if they don't have OCD, we can't expect them to understand. I think that having OCD is such a nuanced experience that unless you've truly been there and you have experienced it yourself, like you can't really take, like no one's going to be able to understand. So I remember being very frustrated in my own experience when my husband, we've been together for fifteen years, but he's also super unflappable, and probably is one of those people too. It's like I've never had one of those thoughts before in my life. Don't know it's what you're like talking about. I, <laughs> I can somehow relate more to someone like in a different country in an OCD support group than my own husband can relate. And at some point, I just like stopped folding my bra. Right, like I just stopped holding my breath, expecting him to totally understand my experience and to totally get it. Like he he's not going to, he doesn't have OCD and I can't hold that against him. So I would encourage people to one, become knowledgeable about it for your own benefit Two, find a community of people who have OCD online and in person. There are lots of opportunities. And then three, you know, don't hold your loved ones to these like unrealistic standards of having what, why can't you just understand? Why don't they understand? But I think that everyone for themselves hopefully will be able to tell like if that person is, you know, worthwhile to bring them in to those deep discussions. It's very vulnerable. It's very personal. And, you know, it's totally up to the person. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It's totally up to that person. They can share as much or as little as they want. But the people I think who are worthwhile being part of that journey will, will try to understand to the best of their ability.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, we talked about, you know, at least here in the United States, but also in Canada, UK, Australia, other areas, NoCD, that's N-O-C-D, an app that you can download. You can access an ERP therapist. Also, TreatMyOCD.com is the web presence for NoCD, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Going to iocdf.org. They have a provider search where you can also type in where your location is and trying to find, there are sometimes support groups listed on there, but you can also find providers, ERP, trained therapists that can help support worldwide and have safe conversations. Another avenue, and, and, you know, we've talked about the live streams. I know IOCDF does live streams. No CD, you guys do live streams. There is a virtual conference coming up in early November for IOCDF. And if you are a person with lived experience of OCD or a family member of a loved one, spouse, you know, basically anybody that's tuning into this community, you would qualify there you can also look into that as an option of attending that virtual conference. I think it's an amazing conference. They have tracks for professionals, but they also have tracks for people living with the experience, people that are trying to support their loved ones that have OCD. And it's phenomenal in terms of educating yourself and learning more information just as you're talking about, Jenna. It's it's a really important and great place to connect with other people just like you, they, to build a community so that you can feel like, hey, I'm not alone. Because as you've pointed out, it can, it can be so extremely isolating. Even within your own home, you can have a wonderful partner, but they just don't get it. And so having a support group where you can go, this happened, and they can, without reassuring the OCD and feeding the OCD, can go, yep, that sucks. And Mm -hmm. I get it. Been there. Yep, totally. So that is really powerful and that is really important. Do you have any other kind of tips and tricks that you would recommend for very people as they're kind of walking through these this postpartum time, if they suspect or already know that OCD is kind of a third, fourth party, another kind of presence in the family system at that time that you would recommend for people?
1: Yeah. So, you know. Hopefully this is the start of, you know, of someone out there and hopefully a lot of women out there feeling like, oh my gosh, like I'm not crazy. Cause I know that's like so many of us think that. So I think they're doing a great job just by doing what, what they need to be doing by continuing to open themselves up to these conversations and break free from the toxic positivity that is motherhood. Like we need to actually be talking about the real stuff and be exposing ourselves to that. But you know, if you do, pursue treatment or help or you know if you want to advocate for yourself in some way I would be very very just expectant of the fact that you are probably going to have to advocate for yourself so when I went and I'm a very well-known OCD specialist in my small community of like 20,000 people and even my OBGYN knowing what I do and knowing that I'm good at my craft and whatnot when I told her that I was having these like really awful, intrusive thoughts. And I just wasn't feeling like myself. She pretty much laughed at me and said like, welcome to motherhood, honey. And, you know, like just laughed it off. And like, it felt very gaslighting and undermining and invalidating. And luckily I know I have the context for what's going on. I'm also a bold person. So I felt comfortable correcting that and saying, no, like I literally, I want to like roll out of a moving vehicle. Then she finally took me seriously women might have to do that. And that's not a problem with them. It's not a problem with any anything else other than the maternal mental health system and just the massive misunderstanding and not understanding at all what postpartum OCD is and really postpartum care in general. So you will have to advocate for yourself. Be prepared for that. The second thing that could happen, and unfortunately it could happen, is that they misinterpret your thoughts, especially if you have harm-intrusive thoughts or sexual-intrusive thoughts, that these are things that you want to do. And again, I would just come very equipped with language that shares that, you know, no, I've done a lot of research and these thoughts are ego-dystonic, which to me seems more consistent with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And research actually shows that women who have unwanted intrusive thoughts about harming their babies are actually less likely to engage in that behavior, according to the scientific study that we're going to share with you. It would be nice if that script existed. We could just download it and go exactly <laughs> right. And like, but but so many words these women don't have, right? Like ego dystonic. That there is actually research out there that suggests that in fact the opposite is true. We have women who are just like, okay, like I guess that that's what's going to happen. Like I, and that's not their fault. That's our systems. So that's going to happen too. So potentially get with that and be prepared for that. And then three, make sure that you find someone who does and specializes in evidence-based treatment for OCD. Too often, we, especially because they do tend to lump everything in postpartum depression, they send you to like a generic talk therapist or, you know, someone who does CBT, which is such a generic term that you're going to end up just going to someone who doesn't understand OCD. You're going to get in a therapy session with somebody who tries to rationalize you out of your thoughts and who just lets you talk at length and engage in verbal rumination. And it's going to feel really helpful until it's not. And you're going to realize three years later why you're still spinning your wheels. And it's because you're not engaging in evidence-based treatment for OCD.
0: Yeah, so that's an important point to, to emphasize. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and a lot of people will go, but the CBT is evidence-based. Yes, for, for different things. And even ERP is a version of CBT, but not all CBT is ERP. And what we find in obsessive-compulsive disorder and what the research has shown us, unlike, say, with just even anxiety disorders, is the exposure alone isn't going to be enough. A lot of CBT programs for anxiety are going to do exposure therapy. But the important part about ERP is the response prevention paired with that exposure, saying, if I don't do the compulsions and I resist the compulsions, and expose myself to this thing that ultimately over time I'm helping my brain learn a different response because again if we think of that closed circuit it's going to reinforce that circuit and so what we need to do is change the circuitry we need to change the learning in the brain and the way we change the learning is by saying okay we need to resist these compulsions which is super hard especially when it comes to the safety of your child if it feels like this could at any chance backfire and my child could get hurt. Well, no, then I'm not going to do that. And that was what you were speaking to in terms of realizing like the stakes were too high and getting caught in that. And so it's a very, very common place to get caught. Really, I would say for parents, whether it's a newborn or not, wanting to protect their child and feeling worried, especially when it comes to some of these other kind of well, again, I mean, the, there's no real good theme that we can select and be like, oh, no, that's a kind of nice one to have for for the kids. No, they're all can be very, very distressing. But we're talking about harm-based themes, sexual-based themes. Yes, that is very, very distressing. And so, in terms of recognizing that evidence-based and not just CBT, but ERP, are looking into that and trying to find more information, even asking the therapist. If you're a family member that's trying to get someone into therapy and you're helping navigate that process, even asking, what's your experience with OCD? How do you treat it? What do you understand the research to be? If it's a real OCD therapist, they're gonna happily share the amazing research that has shown that this can this can help. If if they don't, if they've never even heard of ERP, whether they the practice it or not, like they have never even heard of it, I'm kind of like my spidey sense goes, mm-mm. Because you're right. You can do CBT. You can do beautiful thought stopping and rumination. You can you can mentally all the things that feel so good. in You can you can do all these things, which in in and of themselves can be great, amazing coping skills. But when they are reinforcing, if, if it's a compulsion, reinforcing that obsessional thought. That is not helping you. And that is where it's really important to be able to work with a therapist that understands that and isn't just feeding into it. Otherwise, you're just paying for a compulsion. Your therapist is a compulsion in terms of if you're not working on that evidence-based practice and it might feel really good, you're right. In that moment, like, wow, this therapy is great. I feel better after I see them. And, And then you get out of treatment and you're like, my life sucks if I'm not with that therapist. I can't go on. Oh, this is interesting. But you're paying for a compulsion there. So, what I would say is yes, CBT, it can be used real broadly. And so, understanding whether they're using evidence based treatment for OCD is really important. Having that question. And again, that's another piece of advocacy where you have to do it. And unfortunately, Depending on where you are, you might not really be able to find somebody anywhere nearby that does that. I know here uh, where, I'm, where I live, you know, if you were to go on IOCDF.org, it's me. And then 100 miles later, there's another person. That's, that's not helpful. There's not a lot of access in certain areas of the world to understanding that. But there's still, with the Internet, a lot of resources out there. And so there's a lot of hope with that. Thank you for that. That's- For our intrusive thoughts segment today, I want to review about O C D, the download on social media, all of that. So we'll talk with Jenna about that. Also, you can head on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com and look for this episode in the blog section of the website. There you can get the lowdown on Jenna, links to all the socials, access to that article that Jenna referenced about women that have unwanted intrusive thoughts about harm and other resources that we're going to discuss in a hot minute here. But I also wanted to give a quick heads up regarding research because that gives the perfect link (laughs) and perfect segue to next week's episode where I'm interviewing Dr. Eric Storch regarding a research roundup on what's going on right now, how it affects this community, learning more about how we, the community, can get involved to provide more evidence research and help our loved ones with future treatments, support, you name it. So that will be next week's episode, which you won't want to miss. And for anyone that knows Eric, which I've had the pleasure of learning and consulting with him as a part of my OCD training, we're in for a treat. And speaking of treats, let's get back to Jenna as she gives us a nice big helping of her tips and support that we can start applying even today. One last thing that I was kind of thinking about in the beginning when you were talking about social media, I just remember as a newborn mom, Googling, which is like the frenemy of a newborn mom, right? With social media, we've talked about this kind of toxic positivity. I think, you know, a lot of times there are some people that are really good at being just honest and vulnerable, but a lot of people are showing their perfect life version of themselves. They're not showing the shit show going on behind the screen. And it's so easy. Sometimes even social media and checking can become a compulsion. Well, why is it working for them, and why am why am I failing? And does it mean I'm not a good mom? Or you know, it can become this thing. So I think social media is both a, an asset and it can be a challenge. In that we can get more support, we can find people that are like us, and we can have conversations. But it also can present this picture of reality that is filtered. And and you, that can be really hard for somebody that is cycling any in, in, in mental illness, with OCD as well. Do you have any tips on kind of riding those waves in terms of finding the right community? Because not not all sources are created equal. Right. So, I mean,
1: I do. I'm biased, but, you know, at NoCD, we have a great community. Right. So we have that in-app community. The app is free for everybody. So. Even if you are international or you can't access treatment for whatever reason, that app is free. So we have an in-app community and we're, as we speak, trying to add more interactive elements so that it feels more like a social media kind of platform where people can share stories and, you know, interact more and engage more with other people. But that was a great accessible way that would definitely, I mean, it might not be perfect, but it can certainly make someone feel less alone. And at NoCD, if someone is able to access therapy, we offer like 25 plus support groups every single week. And they're all different, you know, different days, different times. So that's definitely something that could help. Otherwise, I would look at the International OCD Foundation. So iocdf.org, OCD Game Changers. They have a lot of great functions and advocacy work that they engage in. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of really good reputable sources out there. So between OCD, the International OCD Foundation, OCD Game Changers, Hard Quirk, H-A-R-D Quirk is also a really good organization run by two individuals who had OCD or have OCD. And they're now into advocating and they do, I believe, free support groups. So just keep keep going. Keep going. There are resources out there. Give something a try nothing to lose. So just keep going for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, if you are on Instagram, but definitely a lot of those different platforms that Jenna was mentioning in the beginning, there's a huge following on Instagram, though, is the handle treat my OCD. Yeah, it's treat my OCD. Yep. Yeah. And uh, which is the same as, you know, make it easy. It's it's the same as the website. If you wanted to visit the website, the app that she mentioned, well, you can do therapy. And that does have a cost for a lot of people Or you can use insurances through the app. The app itself is free and has a lot of resources as well. There's even, uh, I believe, a self-guided ERP kind of thing that you could use to track your own exposures. Yeah. which is a really lovely way if especially if you're kind of in a remission place or out of therapy. My recommendation is if you're really struggling and it's impacting your functioning, sync up with a therapist. But if you're in this space where you're like, I notice this kind of pop in and out for me every now and then. It's not interfering with my functioning per se, but I would like to work on that. Like you could use NoCD app to kind of structure and it will help kind of guide you through what could an exposure for this look like and what mm-hmm. would I do? And so I think that is a really great resource again. That is absolutely free and the app is NoCD, N O C D. So I think that is a wonderful resource again whether you're choosing the treatment option or not. And it's one that I give people on my waiting list because I'd rather them get help now than wait for their chance to get in with me when there's other therapists that can be available. It's telehealth. You know, and for some people, that feels really nice and accessible because you can access it at your house, you can access it in your car. I've had lots of telehealth in interesting places, as I'm sure you have, Jenna. And some people prefer to be in person. But what I would say is if you need help, get help like it, it, if there's a wait the good news is no cd is a great option for you because if you even sign up for the the newsletter go to treatmyocd.com they'll send you newsletters saying hey there's new ERP therapists available today in Indiana that could see you this week and that's awesome features on it yeah so so that's definitely a resource even if you're not ready to launch into treatment right now if you're thinking about it if this putting a, a little bug in your mind of like, you know, an option for the future, at the very least, you could sign up for the e-newsletter. You could sign up at iocdf.org. These are great resources. Also, Jenna, you have a podcast as well where you talk about OCD, right?
1: Yeah, I do. So I, in addition to my own, you know, personal Instagram, which is very OCD and education content heavy, I have my own podcast called All the Hard Things. It was inspired because in my work with people who have OCD obviously doing exposure and response prevention, it's very difficult. We are intentionally pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone in a way that's challenging but manageable, relinquishing and reducing a lot of our safety behaviors and trying to reduce avoidance. And that's all hard. It's not easy work. And I've had so many people over the past 10 or 12 years ask me, like, why would I choose to do something difficult? Why would I choose to do something that's hard when I could otherwise, you know, take the easy way out? And it's like, It's a it's a question that I have so much to say, to, but also nothing at the same time, like doing hard things is just it's good for you. It's really good for you. And I live by that. So that's really the inspiration behind it. And there also is for moms or new parents out there who are listening, there is a really big emphasis. It's it's OCD in general, education about ERP in general and evidence based treatment but there is a big emphasis. There are lots of episodes. I did a mini series called Anonymous where I brought moms in and also some dads from the community and, you know, asked them the deep, dark questions. I asked them to talk to me about their sexual intrusive thoughts and their harm intrusive thoughts and what it was like to, you know, discuss that with their family and all that stuff. And You know, it's anonymous. So we get all the nitty gritty that we all need to talk about and hear about. So, yeah, really, really great resource for moms, especially, but for anybody who's wanting to learn more about OCD or exposure and response prevention.
0: That's great. So, I'm going to put more information about Jenna again on this episode's blog post at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. Can direct you to her website and more information, her handle for Instagram and all of that. And, Jenna, this has just been, I really just appreciate. A, your experience and what you've contributed to the field and continue to provide in your small community, but also your honesty. About your own lived experience, I think that really is going to bring a lot of hope to people. And I think you're right. You know, well, I know you're right on this, and I know it pops up in all sorts of different professions where we think we we need to have our shit together. We're supposed to be doing this right, whether it's mental health people or whether it's you know pastors and churches or whether it's you know we look at coaches, we look at all these people that we're like, you're you're a guide, you're helping us, and it's like, you know what, we're people too. And we can have difficult experiences, too. And when we're able to be brave enough and courageous enough to talk about it, then a lot of people start talking about it because they go, oh, it's safe to talk about and it's normal to talk about and I'm not alone. And that feels really good. So thank you so much for lending your voice and giving your experience because I'm certain that people are, you know, even from this podcast, but from your work that you're doing both on Instagram and your podcast, as well as at NoCD, I know that you're helping people to not feel so alone as well. So thank you for the contributions you've given. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I just got like full body chilled. Oh, yeah, so
1: thank you. Yeah. I remember very vividly looking at, I was really struggling one day. And I remember looking out my front door, like, how are other people doing this when they don't have the knowledge that I have about OCD? Like, it's no wonder women and, and new parents, they end up harming themselves and, and really just, yeah, it's just awful. And and so, yeah, that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, I like you said, I'm sure that I've helped someone out there, but, you know, yeah, I know. it's all worth it. sounds true.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we don't we won't always know the ripple effect. And that's okay because it's still worth it for the person, for the non-mom out there and the dads and the people going, I needed to hear that. But really, the work that you are doing, I know, is just is definitely making a difference. So thank you for taking the time to spend with our community. I really appreciate it. And continue the great work. This is amazing. Thank you so you so much.
1: We're all in this together. Yes like there's such a big fight against OCD right like we have a lot of work to do and every single person in this community regardless of their like the extent of their contributions or how they contribute every single person here is necessary and it's a really special community so thank Mm -hmm. you for everything that you do as well and yeah yeah, it's well we'll,
0: we're in this together we're in it together and we're better together so yeah thank you thanks for being a part of this Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like talking postpartum woes when they show. That's right, I went there. And you can too, at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.